The Bob Murphy Show, episode 114. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, Bob Murphy here. Just want to let you know, uh, we have a baby coming, and so the schedule is going to be a little bit sporadic. So what you're going to listen to right now is an interview I just did with Dave Smith. Uh, It was recorded on, let me pull up the calendar here. It was recorded on Saturday, March 28th, I believe. Within a day or two, I might be off. And of course, we're talking about COVID and the economic measures that they've deployed in response and civil liberties, all that kind of good stuff. So since it's a lot of what I was going to cover anyway, had I been on a regular schedule, I just thought I'll rerun that right now. And then I think if all goes according to plan, I'll have time to do one more episode before the baby comes, giving my sundry thoughts on uh, the economics of shortages and stuff like that. And also just a lot of practical things that we're doing in our household to minimize the chance of us, uh, anybody in this household getting it. And I think some of you may not fully appreciate little steps you can take. And so we're going to, I'm going to share that in the next episode. But so for right now, Episode 114 is my interview that I did with Dave Smith. Last thing is, let me just mention, if you have contributed and you think you're eligible to be admitted to the Facebook group or if I owe you a signed book and you don't hear from me like two weeks after you've made that contribution, just send me an email. Don't be shy about doing that. It's just, you know, I probably lost it in the shuffle. And oh, one more item. In the interview with Dave, I mentioned that I would send him the link to, uh, it's a Slate Star Codex piece by, he goes by Scott Alexander. I think that's not his real name. But it's it's a great piece summarizing the academic literature on the efficacy of using various types of masks to not get um, coronavirus. And so again, my refrain the last few episodes, you've been listening to me talk about this, is the initial messaging was very misleading, if not outright false, where they were saying, oh yeah, don't wear a mask, don't worry about that, just wash your hands for 20 seconds and sing a song that may have led you to believe that you catch this thing just from touching somebody or touching something and then absentmindedly touching your eyes or your mouth. And that's that's not correct. You get it from breathing air as well. And so I will post in the show notes for this page, so bobmurphyshow.com slash 114, the link to that Slate Star Codex piece if you want to go look at the actual academic literature on you know how masks of different types work and so forth. Okay, so without further ado, here is my interview with Dave Smith. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Part of the Problem. I have a guest today who I'm very excited to talk to, one of my favorite people and my favorite economists out there. Of course, it is Bob Murphy, who is uh, an author of several fantastic books. He's also a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and he is host of The Bob Murphy Show, which if you haven't checked out uh, already, is just one of the best podcasts out there. It's different than any other podcast in this space Bob goes super depth into different issues um, and and really always has a point of view and, and uh, different arguments that are unlike things you're going to hear anywhere else and have really made me you know rethink uh, certain issues and learn new things about uh, a lot of different topics. So very happy to have you with me, Bob. How are you? We're doing okay. Uh, this is this is a pretty rough time for everybody, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it, no. It, it, there's a lot of people who are really um, going through. Just very, very difficult times. I know that, um, you know, all all across the country, in really an unprecedented way, people are, you know, have family members who are sick. People can't visit family members who are sick. I, I know that's going on in in my family right now with in my with my wife's family. And then, of course, um, the economic stuff, where I know there are a lot of people who have lost their jobs. A lot of people really uncertain about the future. And uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, what, hey, let, let hey just, Dave, can I ahead. can I do my my like public service announcement about the masks? It, it oh. also bashes the government, so you should like it. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so let me just clarify, just because I'm still talking, like my talk to my mom a few days ago, and she hadn't known this. So just w- with the messaging that was coming out, and we, my wife has background lung issues, and so we were 
really, really trying to make sure like I didn't get this thing and bring it into the household or whatever. And with the initial messaging, they were saying, they were explicitly saying masks have not been found to be effective. Don't go get masks. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. Sing a song. Here's a song that's the appropriate leg. And so that led me to believe that you got it from touching. And also like the lady, that clip where she's, she's saying, don't touch your mouth. And then she licks her, you know, that thing. Yeah. So besides that, just being funny, that you know underscored the idea that the way you get this thing is you touch somebody who's sick and then you forget and then you you know you touch your eyes or your but no of course masks help and and that's the whole reason so whether it's this um because they wanted to reserve the mask for the healthcare workers or just bureaucracy or what have you but the, yeah the messaging especially like from the CDC up front they've gotten i think better and more and more you know independent experts have have done podcasts and things so i think more of the public knows this but Anyway, I just want to mention for those, you know, out there, especially like older people or who have background issues that, you know, if you need to go out to the store for some reason, because someone said, oh, don't worry, masks don't do it. No, they, they do something. And what that means is the mask is not foolproof, especially if you don't know how to do one of those, you know, N95 masks, if you're not a trained professional to get the suction and everything, but certainly putting it on is better than nothing, which is last thing I'll say today, which, which is why they, they were so concerned about making sure the healthcare workers got it. Right. So there was sort of a paradox that, you, oh yeah, you and the public don't don't bother buying these things because we need to reserve it for the healthcare workers who are dealing with coronavirus patients. Well, that doesn't make mm. any sense then. So yeah, that seems that seems to not be uh, there seems to be a little bit contradictory. No, I was uh, we were I was talking about this with uh, I had Scott Horton on the other day, and he was saying that there's actually there there's studies that kind of demonstrate that even the shittiest mask does something. Right. Like even if even like some like homemade thing that you made out of cloth or something like that is better than nothing. Speaking of which, some of the hospitals from I think it's with CDC guidance are telling doctors and nurses how to make masks at home like using household items and stuff so yeah. clearly yeah it's better than nothing and uh I, if, if you have like do you show notes links i can send you there's um a review of all the literature on this stuff from that that slate star codex guy if you're familiar with him but he went through the you know just just going through all the different studies like scott horton was alluding to so i mean with all these things you know academics are very careful to cover their bases and you know the preponderance of the evidence and in this stuff but but yeah, other things equal, certainly having a barrier in front of your face is better than not. Yeah, it's, um, it, and, but who, who would imagine that the government would get it wrong, uh, when they really, when, when we really were relying on them? Yeah. Um, I, I, w- I will say, like, I think, you know, it, in the midst of all this and how bad everything is, one of the good things is that I think a lot of like normal, non ideological people now realize, oh, wow, we can't trust the people in charge, you know, to, to even get us, you know, good advice on something like that. I mean, that's, yeah, well, that's, that's kind of like the, the silver lining maybe is that at least there's no question. I I was on, um, I recorded with a Jimmy door, uh, last night, um, on his show, Uh, you know who Jimmy door is. He's like a real left-wing guy, but one of their best, one of the best left-wingers, you know, in the country really hates war, really hates, you know, the deep state and and corruption and stuff like that. Um, And he basically agreed with me. And I think his his co-host did, too, that it's like, look, this is a demonstration of government failure, monumental failure all across the globe. And and so that's what we have going for us. The other thing, though, that is, uh, you know, the 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 negative part is that people are also saying, and this was their position. It's like, well, at this point we need, you know, emergency UBI, we need Medicare for all. I mean, people are, are, you know, so, you know, kneecapped by this whole situation Mm -hmm. that obviously the government has to step in to help them. So that's the, maybe the issue for us going forward. Um, I, so I obviously I want to get your thoughts on all, everything about this and the economy and all this, but you know, I just read, I, I didn't have this piece of information when I was on with Jimmy Dore. I just read this morning and this could be wrong, but I, I heard someone say that it's basically um, this whole stimulus plan in total is going to add $80,000 of debt per uh, per household that they owe back uh, uh, in the national debt. And so that kind of puts the crummy 1200 bucks that you might be getting into a little bit of perspective. What do you think about the whole government, you know, stimulus bailout craziness? Um, so, yeah, I mean, the... It, it is a weird situation where the government at various levels is ordering people not to go to work. And so, you know, the, I can see how this is a situation where just like if the government takes your land that they're supposed to give you compensation for it. So, I mean, it's, I can understand someone who normally is against, you know, government handouts and things like that saying, this is a weird, this isn't really a handout. Um, 
but yeah, the way this thing's structured, like you're saying, clearly it it would have been cheaper or for the same amount of money, they could have given a lot more direct relief to households if they had done it that way. So I, I guess given that they're going to spend trillions of dollars on, on so-called stimulus, it would be better if they just did targeted, you know, direct things to um, households. The, the problem, yeah, with, with this stuff is that it's, um, I mean, they're, they're not creating more resources. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that doesn't make us richer. The fact that the federal government is borrowing money and sending it out to people. And so I, I, I think that they really do need to figure out a way to, you know, to, to really quote, rescue the economy that, you know, the issue is getting people to be able to go back to work or at least more people. And by the way, I, I don't just mean like, oh yeah, this, you know, forget about it. And some people just have to hole up in senior citizen centers. I mean, it could be a new world, at least for a long time until there's herd immunity and ultimately a vaccine. You know, like I'm sure Dave, you know, like Trader Joe's is having people you know, line up like far apart from each other. So there's l- l- lots of um, stores around here, at least are developing where you can just do drive, you know, drive through or, or curbside pickup and things like that. So, you know, that it might look like that, but clearly, I mean, it's the only way this is going to be solved, not just the government taxing money and then sending out the, that money back to people or or borrowing it and sending it out to people. They got to get people back to work. That's really the issue. I, I guess another way of putting it is even a lot of free market types are treating this like the problem is, oh, if people can't go spend money, well, then how's the economy going to work? And obviously, so one way I've, I've been trying to walk through this in my head is suppose a year ago, you know, before all this stuff, if there had just been a craze going through the, the world about, you know what, people really need to save more. Let's not go out to restaurants so much. Let's not go out to the movies so much. Let's not go to Starbucks, you know, get a cure to get home. And it built up like three months worth of savings, you know, from, from the, getting rid of that discretionary activity that you could get rid of and then go back to your normal lifestyle. If suppose that were taking off, I mean, you could see Paul Krugman or somebody warning that's going to cause a depression, but that's not what you and I would have said, Dave. We would have said, no, no, it's just resources get reallocated. Da, da. So I guess what I'm saying is in and of itself, the fact that there's this virus and the appropriate thing could be very short term, you know, significant restrictions of public activities or whatever to try to get a handle on it or at least to get more information and see if that's working to me you know i'm okay with that in principle and maybe something analogous to that would have happened in a free society and i don't think that would have caused a global depression right so do you know i mean i think there's a good point there and i've i've wondered if maybe there there could be some economic you know silver linings that that come from this whole thing i mean i'm don't get me wrong i'm very concerned about what the economy is going to look like but I wonder what effect this could have on, say, like like the savings rate in this country. Like maybe uh, people will be a little bit more concerned about an emergency and people will be a little bit more incentivized to save. Of course, as as you know, uh, and this is one of the things like I really learned from the uh, the Austrian school economists is that then the government comes in and ruins all these incentives by bringing yeah. interest rates right back down to zero. So it's like every time that there there might be a situation where people would be like, oh, you know what, I really should have a little bit of money stocked away just in case because, hey, something could happen. We never saw this coming. Something else could happen that we never see coming. And then, of course, the federal government's going to do everything they can to crush that incentive to save. Um, so, that, you know, that it seems like anytime there is a potential silver lining, the feds do everything they can to eliminate that potential. But I wonder, I, I, I'm curious, like, how can bad, I ask? Can oh, I yeah, please, to, please. And not even just saving you know, cash, but also like people are realizing now, wow, it's good to have, you know, a month worth of toilet paper in your, yeah. in your pantry and things like, I mean, I think everyone's realizing the system that we relied on or put it this way. I think a lot of Americans knew that what their government was doing was not cool. But it was like, you know, but still we, we got Best Buy, you know, you go to Whole Foods, you got this, you know, it's okay. This is like we're the living in the Roman Empire and these are the, you know, there's there's benefits from that. And then now I think this what this is showing is no, you can't even rely on that stuff. Not only are these people doing stuff that is immoral, they can't even ensure that this system is going to work properly and, and these crises are going to keep re- recurring. L- let me just clarify what, though, just so no one misunderstood. I do think the economy is going to be bad, but I'm saying it's not because of people scaling back going to work for a month or two like like or or especially because the thing is i don't know what it's like maybe it's more severe where you are dave but like i'm in massachusetts right now and we went out the other day and we were on lockdown i mean the governor had ordered i don't know if he, if he called it well it was just like non-essential businesses and there were like bars open and stuff so i think 
a lot of the community, a lot of the business owners were saying, well, we're going to open with a, you know, is a cop going to come here and point a gun at me? Cause I'm, you know, and maybe they will eventually. I think actually they will. And maybe in some States they have started doing that. But my point is, is just that it's um, I, I think it's not so much restricting some of the more discretionary activities, but the stuff that the government is doing and the federal reserve is doing that that's really going to hurt. In other words, all these things that they're doing in just normal times, Dave, you and I would have been horrified by sure. all the various measures, you know, it's like borrowing, like you say, borrowing $80,000 worth per household, a new debt and the federal reserve added, it's like $700 billion just like in the last week or something to its balance sheet. And, and that, by the way, the fed had already been inflating again since last September, it had added about 300 billion just because of so-called repo operations. Right. So it's not like everything was great. Oh, and then this virus hit. So that that's another element in this too, is that I think the bubble, the stock market collapsing and things like that, 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 that was already pumped up to a high level. And this was just the thing that the shock that made it all start coming down. Right. So then the, the question that I'd be wondering is that, you know, if the Austrian economists are correct, which I, I believe they are, and a lot of people like, like yourself and, you know, uh, people at the Mises Institute and, you know, uh, have been saying that, well, look, we're, we're basically have been, you know, building up another bubble and it's due to burst. Like this really could happen at any, at any time now. Um, is it possible that this is the event that triggers that, or, or whether it's the actual shutdown or the Fed's response to the shutdown, is it going to get to a point? I mean, now they're talking about, you know, I, I mean, we might be running a $2 trillion deficit with back to in interest rates at zero for, I mean, an indeterminate amount of time. Who knows uh, how long and how, like, how much more of this can we actually get away with before people don't want to buy our debt? Yeah, that's great questions. Um, so, yeah, I was. As you know, look with all the rounds of QE, I was saying they're blowing up a bubble, and then I was pretty sure that there was going to be something by this coming summer because of the yield curve inversion last summer, right? And that's not a particularly Austrian thing. I think the Austrian school explains why a yield curve inversion signals a recession, as it were. But it, but but that you know correlation, lots of financial analysts know about that, and so lots of people last summer. But just for your listeners or your uh, viewers, Dave, who don't know. So the yield curve is is in this context means the the yield on treasuries of different maturities, and so a yield curve inversion means that the short term treasury yields are higher than the long term ones, and so that so that's typically rare in modern times with fiat money, but that happened last summer, and when that happens, usually within about a year, there's a recession. So I already thought, okay, that's the signal. You know, the Fed had started raising rates; they started backing off, and and that's typically what happens in these boom bust cycles. The Fed lowers rates blows up a bubble, they get nervous because of price inflation or whatever, asset prices are getting too too high, and then they back off, raise rates, and then there's a turn. So I think partly what happened here is, it's funny, a lot of us were warning, you know, warning for years, oh, you guys, you know, you're chicken little, but the federal funds rate was basically 0% for seven years in a row. You know what I mean? So so it, technically, that was the textbook play out, that they had the late rates really low, and there wasn't a crash, and then they started raising rates, and then the yield curve inverted. So you know, so that that was normal. Um, is as far as your other question, I mean, so obviously the stock market came down, and you know, at first when it was just when it was tanking like fifteen percent in a few days, when this was still just you know something that everyone was concerned about, but it wasn't like you know changing your way of life. At that point, I thought this the market drop, and I was arguing this was was more than was justified by just you know restrictions from you know, goods coming from China or something. And so I kind of thought, yeah, this was the thing that pricked the bubble. But now that I've seen how much it's developed and what the government's done in response, I suppose it's possible that, you know, those investors back then realized this was a bigger deal than I did at the time. So, you know, that one. So I guess that's my long way of saying, Dave, that certainly those of us who thought they blew up a bubble, I mean, what more needs to happen than you saw how fast the thing burst. But I could see the defenders of the orthodoxy saying, no, you, yeah, you guys were warning, but you got lucky in the sense that this, this virus came along that you, you know, you weren't predicting a virus, which is obviously true. Yeah. And also that that will be blamed if it does break right. the bubble. Right. I mean, this is so, you know, we, we lose in that way yeah. um, as well. Oh, but you, you had asked me about the treasury. So right now, I mean, it's amazing. Yields on short term treasuries are negative, you know, meaning that people are like paying the government to lend them money. But it, it's hard to, for me, it's like to disentangle that from what the Fed is doing. 
Um, and so, but so surely though, or, or clearly what happens in the panic right now, people still rush to U.S. treasuries is a so-called safe haven. But the, I think the dollar is, is more dominant. And I think the way you can see that is that's why the Fed was engaging in all these so-called re- repo operations. So repo stands for repurchase agreement. So that's where someone has treasuries and they put it up as collateral in order to borrow actual cash on a short-term basis, like sometimes just overnight. And so that's the, the market that the Fed has been backstopping since last September. And that's why they added $300 billion in extra, you know, to their to their balance sheet to try to get more reserves into the system. So, I mean, that that wasn't about the virus. So I think you know, you do see, at least in the very short term, that that people were realizing cash was much better than, you know, treasuries even in that sense, or certain segments of the of the public. So the way I think this would play out eventually is at some point, yeah, the yields on treasuries are going to start rising. And then like it'll so like the treasury will be the thing that people start doubting its abilities, but the Fed. I think will be the last bastion. So I, I think the Fed can inflate out of this particular one and kick the can down the road. But then at some point, even the dollar is going to be suspect. But but I, I want to be clear because I know some people are throwing around the term hyperinflation right now. I I, I think that's that's premature. I, I think right now everybody is so panicked that the dollar is actually you know they're cranking out dollars and everyone's gobbling them up just like pe- you know people want toilet paper and canned sure. goods and bottled water and they they want dollars right now. So is it possible that what this is really going to do is just make uh, the the crash when it does occur even worse than we already wanted it because we're just going to kind of blow up the bubble even more? Well, I think it's going to be kind of like the 0809 situation, but just worse, right? Where there, you know, if they had done nothing, you know, you know, it would have been bad. They, the Fed comes in and does all this stuff and that, you know kicked the the can down the road, but it wasn't like we were all thinking how great the economy was in 2011. Right. You see what I'm saying? So I think it's going to be like that, that it, it's, I think, yeah, the Fed, what it's doing is going to prevent unemployment from going up as high as it otherwise would have. And, and it's certainly going to keep the treasury yields down because now the Fed's, you know, a backstop there soaking it up it, it, effectively, like the Fed's printing money to lend to the government so they can they can spend mo- borrowed money. I mean, that's it's right. an indirect mechanism, but I mean, that's partly what's going on with all this stuff. So, yeah, I I think the Fed doing what it's doing will make the next two years, at least on paper, not be as bad as they otherwise would be. But at the ex- but they're not going to be good in any absolute sense. They're going to be bad. But then, yeah, the, by doing that, it makes the, the it just pushes the the real crisis down the road. It makes it that much worse. Because well, I mean, yeah, it's sure the the I mean what what. Maybe this is a way to put it, what the Fed's trying to do. So this is an analogy I came up with. The big criticism of Trump, right, and and this one I I think the critics have a good point, is that early on he was acting like nothing was wrong, right? Like his big thing was let's not change our behavior. Let's come out of it. Whereas the other people were concerned, like, no, we need to change our behavior. The current situation is not, you know, look at what it's yielding us. And so the Fed, by doing what it's doing, it's kind of like trying to keep the markets from changing their behavior. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like, like well, int- I, no, no, that makes, that makes sense to me. And I do think that, um, you know, I, Trump might just be lucky in the fact that he's running against Biden. It looks like who is just like out to lunch, uh, in, mm-hmm. in many ways. But I did think, um, when they had, they had those clips that a lot of them were sharing of Trump saying, you know, this is no big deal. It's the flu. It's not, I was like, man, this could be his downfall. Like that, that's really bad. I remember, um, when John McCain, do you remember this when John McCain had that quote in 2008 uh he said the fundamentals of the economy are strong and this got used yeah. against him a lot um which you know is fair because you know when you had like uh you know Jamie Diamond and all those those bankers going to George W Bush and saying if you don't bail us all out the whole economy will tank and you know people which I think they were overplaying it but mm-hmm. saying that you know people won't the, won't be able to get money out of their ATMs and basically the United States of America is over as we know it well, you can either say that or you can say the fundamentals of the economy are strong, but it, it seems hard to say both. And Donald Trump to say, oh, this is no big deal, and then be like, I'm shutting down you know, huge parts of the entire country. Well, you mm-hmm. can only have one or the other. It can't be both. And uh, so I think you know, maybe Trump can get away with it because he can just say contradictory things and it doesn't seem to stick to him, but uh, that could be a real weakness for him. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I... Let me just say this before I forget. I, I think a lot of even like libertarian types, they're they're acting like we're on the bomb squad 
and were rushing to defuse the bomb. And I think the bomb already went off. So I don't know if if you get what I mean. Like like just yeah. the and I don't mean to be like pessimistic or something, but maybe you can even read in my body language that like I'm just really knocked back by all this. Like it's just amazed me how fast they unrolled all this stuff. I mean, there's things like um I don't know if you heard the case in New Jersey. It was at a Wegmans and, and like some guy that the, the employee asked the guy to stand back and he coughed on her and was like, said I had coronavirus and now he's being charged with terrorism. Yeah. Like a ter- so obviously he shouldn't have done that. Like, you know, and that's, that's the, the problem with these things is where, you know, they get their foot in the door with someone being a complete jerk. And so the public, no one's going to have sympathy for that guy, but like, th- that's a slippery slope because now, you know, with drones and stuff, if somebody breaks curfew, you could, they could charge the person with terrorism. Yeah. You see what I mean? I'm not saying they've done that, but I'm saying that that's the principle. If, if you're saying it's not, it's not that far away by, yeah. by violating the public health protocols as established in this situation, you know what I mean? You are endangering other, you know, like you're, you're committing a crime then. No, this is, this know. is the, uh, such a problem. And you're, you're absolutely right. And this is why they're, it's, it's evil, but it's like genius that they always kind of pick on someone who you're, you're not going to feel any sympathy for. So, okay, this is somebody who intentionally coughed on someone, but you have to kind of ask yourself what precedent is this setting. And so what about a person who just coughs? Like it isn't intentionally coughing on somebody. It's just like they cough and they were a little bit close. Now is that, is that person a terrorist for coughing? I mean, like this is, this is really scary stuff and it's really, it, it freaks me out, um, even more than the economic stuff, just how much people are willing to not only accept, but cheer on government suspending Rights. I mean, you know, maybe you feel like it's necessary. It's that extreme of a moment that, you know what, the government, uh, we need this given even maybe some like Austro, you know, libertarian ANCAP person could say, look, I wish we lived in an anarcho-capitalist society um, where private property owners could make these decisions. But you know what? We don't. The government's the only one in this emergency. We need this. Like I I can wrap my head around that. Mm -hmm. But aren't people a little concerned that we've now set the precedent that because the government says something is an emergency, they can shut down whatever they want to and enforce it by law. I mean, what what can they, they could decide climate change is an emergency. They could decide maybe there's some virus that isn't really a threat like this, but they can decide, you know, like what about when the next Ebola or the next, you know, SARS or swine flu, those ones that we all just kind of worked through. What about when that comes up? Is this now the the new normal that we're going to revert to this or accept the government crackdowns? I, this stuff really freaks me out. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the best analogy is 9-11 with this stuff where, you know, that was a real thing. It wasn't like, you know, there was, there was no issue there. <laughs> you know, and they, right. oh, come on, everyone's freaking out over nothing. That, you know, that <laughs> happened. And, and by the way, you could be super conspiratorial and say Dick Cheney planted charges or something. Okay, just like people some are saying this was a bioweapon that the U.S. Okay, fine. But it's not that it's just nothing. Right. Um, but then, but you're right. The, the responses to it, that not that, you know, just like with the terrorism, they, you know, know your client. I mean, they, that, the, the ability to fight terrorism, Americans let the government just get into all kinds of stuff, like looking at your bank records and you can't take out too much money at any one time from the bank. I mean, the way they, the, the pretext for a lot of that stuff was anti-money laundering to make sure you're not funneling money to terrorist groups. And they couldn't have done a lot of that stuff, you know, as aggressively as they did had it not been for 9-11. So I think it's the same thing here that, yeah, in principle, they would love, I mean, it just, I mean, I've been saying for a while that, oh, the, the, they have flying killer robots, you know, like Obama's secret kill list. If you just, just say it in those words, they have fly, the government right now has flying killer robots that they say they can just kill people on their secret kill list with. But yet, you know, I knew, okay, in some dystopian future, those things are going to be flying around, you know, domestically. And I've already seen stories about how they're thinking about deploying drones to see or who's not, not, not armed, just surveillance so far. But I mean, obviously we can see this stuff. So it, it, you know, they, they dropped the hammer very quickly, you know, things that I would have thought I, that I thought were coming in my lifetime, but I didn't think they were coming this year. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And you see it just on the on the kind of smaller levels up to the really big levels. But it's the way it, it always seems to work is that there are I mean, this is I think it was Henry Kissinger and um, uh, Geithner both said some version of the same thing where like, you know, uh, a crisis is an opportunity to get things through that you couldn't get normally. And you see it like it's all these little pet projects and things that they wanted already and then they see okay this is my opportunity and this is why you know the like the good thing is that it is out there for a lot of people to see but like in this uh um this this 
bill in this this bailout package that just got put together where they have things like, you know, the Democrats are sticking in like diversity quotas and things like that. Like, okay, that's not scary on the level of the stuff that me and you are talking about, Mm -hmm. whether we agree with it or not. But you just see that they're like, this has nothing to do with the actual problem. And yeah. you're just kind of sneaking in your little power grab here and there to get whatever it is you can. You know, there were, there were things about businesses that that cut carbon emissions being, you know, like given more money. And you're like, well, what the hell does this have to do with uh, with coronavirus? I mean, it's a, yeah. it's obviously, you know, just an excuse. And that that's all around us. Yeah. And like what the Fed has been doing has just been astonishing to me that they uh, so it was like two Sundays ago. They had their emergency meeting you know, surprise announcement. and it wasn't in the main press release. The main press release said, oh, in addition to these measures, there are other measures designed to keep credit flowing to households. Go see this press release. So you had to click the link, and there was another one. And then at the bottom paragraph, it mentioned how they got rid of reserve requirements for the banks. Right. So in the grand scheme of things, not a big deal. But I mean, just a little, oh, yeah, by the way, we're, no more reserve requirements, expected to March 26th. And I mean, no fanfare, just little things like that. And, and the stuff they've done recently now, I mean, the Fed has gotten into they're they're able to buy corporate debt. They're going to have asset backed securities that you know have student loans and credit cards. I mean, the the Fed now just for your listeners in case you know they didn't they didn't know this. I mean, historically, the Fed could just buy government debt because they. I mean, that was the you know the quid pro quo. That was you know the, part of the reason the government would give the Fed its its privileges was because you know basically run the printing press to lend to the government, especially in wartime. But that, but the because the, they saw the the potential for corruption, you know, that the Fed could go buy go around and buy specific assets. Obviously, there's a huge role for corruption or scope for corruption. But yet, after the housing bubble and crash, the Fed got into buying mortgage backed securities, and it's it's never going to stop doing that. You know, I mean, that's that's there forever. Just like after nine eleven, you know, they have the TSA. It doesn't matter how many you know spot checks they do. I don't know if you know this day, but like the the government's own accountability office, they do tests to like put f- guns through. Everything yeah. gets through. TSA doesn't stop anything, like even yeah, on was, their own tests. <laughs> it was like ninety percent or something like that right. got I, through. It was outrageous. Yeah. It, it, it was like so big. I assumed it had to be wrong, and I went and looked, and it's like, yeah, it was like ninety plus percent of the stuff gets through on their own controlled experiment to see if if they're catching stuff. But yeah, the TSA is never going to go away. And so I'm saying with this stuff that yeah, the, the Fed doing all this because of this particular thing that you know, no matter how bad it may or may not be, it's we're going to get through the worst of this within 18 months. You know, well, people are saying there'll be a vaccine at the very least in 18 months. So, I mean, there's no reason, whatever the Fed's doing right now, that they should still be holding asset-backed securities that have credit card debt and student loans 18 months from now. I'm guessing they will. I don't think they're going to give that power up. So, yeah, there's lots of, you know, and I don't know how much to make it. Like, is it all these guys were in the cigar-filled room and then they said release the coronavirus. You know, I'm not saying that, <laughs> but but what I am saying is, as you, yeah, they they had their things they wanted to do for a while, and then this this is the opportunity to take advantage of it. Yeah, that's I. I mean, I who the hell knows what the scenario is, but the second one seems most likely to me that they they see this and that people who are you know power brokers you know, normally they see an opportunity like this and it's, and their eyes get wide and they're like, okay, now we can really move forward with a lot of stuff that they've wanted to do. Uh, mm-hmm. I think probably for a very long time. And, um, and just to show that that's, there's nothing crazy about that or like, Oh, so, I mean, there's lots of people right now who weren't going to be able to make their rent payment. And now this is a good, Oh yeah, I can't. It's Cause you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, yeah. and so you could say like, Oh, I, I always would have loved to not make my rent and not get evicted, but now I can get away with it. You know what I mean? So it's like things, whereas before I couldn't have gotten away with it. They would have kicked me out of my building. So I'm just saying like the, the idea that the people in power are using this, that's not a crazy thing. I think everybody, you know, something like this happens and. Um, oh yeah. And, and I mean, the big example in, in my lifetime, at least uh, that's just kind of undeniable is the war in Iraq. That it's just that all these people who were openly advocating for war in Iraq before 9-11, all the neocons were were mm-hmm. pissed off that they didn't overthrow uh, Saddam in, in George H.W. Bush's war. They were all like advocating. They were c- criticizing Clinton for being too easy on Iraq when he was just bombing them and, and setting up the embargo and all that stuff. And then as soon as 9-11 happens, they're like, well, obviously this means we need to go to war with Iraq. And it's like, okay, but you did... You did want this before 9-11, and there's no evidence yeah. 9-11 had anything to do with this. So my guess is you're just jumping at the opportunity. And that's a real deal, you know, a war that killed hundreds yeah. of thousands of people. I mean, this is that's yeah. about as bad as anything is. 
Yeah. Um, and, and like on the, for, just to give another example of that like on the Fed, so not this most recent thing, but like a couple of weeks or at this, yeah, maybe three or four weeks ago at this point, I'm losing track. But they announced a $1.5 trillion issuance in the repo markets. And, and by the way, th- so there is some subtlety there. It, like if the Fed's just lending money and then they get it back. So, I mean, that's not the same thing as like just giving money to, to somebody, but certainly to have someone backing you up and being able to lend up to $1.5 trillion, you know, that, that certainly helps you out. But in, in what they were doing is for, I think it was one month and three month repos as opposed to just overnight or, or you know, like two week or something. And the way like the CNBC articles were talking about it is to say, ah, in, in a, you know, moves that certain investors had been you know, clamoring for for months, the Fed finally now expanded. You know what I mean? So th- that kind of stuff, you know, nothing too sinister about that. But yeah, there's certain things that people wanted. And then now this is the, the, the crisis that they can go ahead and do that. Whereas in other contexts, people might have said, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure that's a good idea. What do you think? And and I know you know you've talked about um, before. You have one. You had an episode um, with Tom Woods. I think it was back around the time of Ebola. It was early in Tom Woods' show, like in mm-hmm. the first few hundred episodes, I believe, where you guys did uh, an episode about how, like, in an anarcho-capitalist society, things like this could be it could be handled. And and you know, like, obviously, I mean, I think we've seen a lot of like I know before there was any government any government mandate or anything like that. The um my, my my wife's grandfather who's very old he's like 96 and has been in bad health but he's just the toughest old italian on the planet so every literally every time like six different times i've been like oh my god he's he's definitely going to die now and then he bounces back and he's absolutely fine he's 96 and you know thank god for the moment doing okay um but he is at a uh, like a nursing home and they shut down all visitation. Yeah. And this yeah. was before there was any government, you know, like mm-hmm. mandate to do so. It's just that a, a private company was like, well, look, all these people are at very high risk. We we just can't risk. And it's really it's it's horrible. It's like heartbreaking because they can't see uh, their grandfather. You know, my, my wife, uh, my mother-in-law can't see her father. And it's really mm-hmm. it's awful. But you understand why they had yeah. to do this, because they have to protect these people. And if one case of coronavirus gets in there, this is it, it would be a disaster. Um, so do you, you know, do you think it seems to me like probably there would be a lot of voluntary, you know, bit, uh, you know, private property owners deciding that like, okay, we're, we're going to have to shut down, re, you know, restrict people from moving in and out of here the way they do norm during normal times. Do you think that would be a big part of like the f- kind of free society's response? Oh, oh, definitely. And, and before we get like too hypothetical, let me just mention before I forget, I mean, there's plenty of clear examples right now in the real world where it was government policies that were preventing the private sector from helping. So the yeah. huge one is testing. I mean, up front, you know, the CDC and FDA were denying labs. And I understand that I think like in principle, the idea is, oh, because well, you don't want some fly-by-night company sending people Corona tests that don't work, you know, and they think they're fine and they're not, or, or they say that they're, they're sick and they're not. And that's the, but clearly, I mean, there were reputable labs that, you know, had tests that were good. And, you know, the FDA wasn't letting them. So that, that was, you know, early on, one of the re- problems that people will, will say is that the U.S., you know, w- was slow in getting un- un- ramping up the testing. And so that's clearly far from me saying, oh, yeah, it's because Trump was asleep at the wheel. And did it. No, it's because the, the CDC and FDA were actively preventing people from doing it. Um, there's also crazy stuff, too. We were talking about the, the hospital situation with the masks. So in case some of your listeners don't know, I mean, it's like these doctors and nurses are like on the front lines and they're, they're being told to wear bandanas and stuff like that, which is like, you know, telling troops to go take Normandy and giving them butter knives. It's nutty. And so, and I, I mean, I'm directly involved. Like I know a guy, he, he has some, what they're called K95, KN95 masks that there's, you know, similar. And it's like various hospitals will not take them like these other types of masks because they don't meet the guidelines, but instead they're telling people, here's how you make stuff for, with household supplies. So, I mean, it's, you know, really, there's some, a lot of crazy stuff like um, that. Also with the private testing, there was uh, companies coming up that were going to have like mailing kits to your home. And we, you know, we were looking into that ourselves. And then all of a sudden, no, the FDA ruled you can't do that. Right. So, I mean, it's, there's lots of things that, that in this actual crisis, things that they're criticizing the government for, for being slow on that the private sector was literally barred from, from stepping in and helping with. But, but yeah, so to answer your question, I think, yes, in a Rothbardian world, the, you know, the one thing that's significantly different is the property, you know, boundaries are, are owned by the private owners and they can set whatever rules they want. So 
in principle, any kind of quarantining, you know, rules you wanted in theory could be implemented. You know, they would have the legal right to do that. Whereas, you know, now there might be issues of discrimination or something. Um, so that, you know, the airports and whatever, they could set up whatever kind of screening they wanted just more generally. Yeah. I think you're right that it, had it not been for government measures that people would have been concerned, you yeah, nursing homes and stuff obviously would have taken countermeasures. And then I think a lot of people would have just stopped going to restaurants and, and whatnot because they would be worried. And so in order to bring the, you know, entice customers back that those businesses would have to demonstrate to them, no, look at it's safe. And so they would, you know, revamp and come up with some way to, to, um, you know, get people to come in. So I, like we said, having just takeout or, or having, you know, curbside pickup or, or like we saying with Trader Joe's doing their spacing people out. I mean, there's lots of things they could do. And um, I think, yeah, there would just be a lot more creativity. The, the last thing I'll say is, I mean, there's a, there's a, a trade-off, right? That the, you know, the more people who just stay, stay in their houses and don't go out, the less the virus spreads. But then of course, you know, that hurts other things too. And you can't stay at home if you don't have toilet paper. Well, you need people to be making toilet paper, you know? So obviously it can't just be nobody goes to work for three months. Otherwise we're all be dead. Right. Except for like Owen Benjamin with his goats and whatever, but. Owen's going to be fine. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah. Who's the crazy guy now? Right. Um, But you know, so obviously it's not an either or. Um, and then, and so that's something in terms of, well, how do you do appropriate trade-offs where that's something that the market is great at, right. That you, you know, that's the top down planners. They don't know what the right trade-off is. Um, you know, in terms of, of essential businesses, like, okay, yeah, you, you want banks open, you want grocery stores open. Okay. But then you also need to have the factories open that are making the paper towels. Right. And so you need to have the guy driving the, the truck that takes it, you know, so it's, you start saying, well, who's essential or not? I mean, you could say, okay, I guess the nail salons aren't essential, but I mean, it's hard to really say what's yeah. clearly non-essential. Um, since I brought that up, if you don't mind, let me just mention one other thing, Dave, that part of what concerns me with all this is you've got you know stocks crashing. They say only essential businesses. Well, that's going to give a huge advantage to like the established firms, right? Because they're going to be big and you know they're the ones, oh, and they're getting bailouts too. So I think among other things that's going to happen here is you're going to just see that people who already are on top are just going to crush sole proprietorships and you know small businesses that you know normally would be the the challenging thing. So I mean you see that in general like with regulations or whatever that the big companies can comply more easily. So I think here it's going to be that on steroids where small yes. businesses are like literally are going to be prevented from going to work. It's going to be illegal for them to compete with these big firms. And then on top of all that, the Fed's coming in and is going to have a lien on all that stuff. So it's like this is a great way to transfer a lot of stuff at basement prices over to, you know, a bunch of people who own the banks. Oh, <laughs> I, I, no, absolutely. And it's this is going to be a disaster for for inequality, um, which I think sometimes um, e- even libertarians, particularly the more kind of like libertarianism inc uh types um but they always it's like if you talk about inequality their knee-jerk response is just kind of that like inequality doesn't matter because in a free market you know it, which is true in a free market but we're not in a free market and the 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 whole system that we live under isn't is really you know the the government robbing regular people to give money to cronies i mean and and it seems to me like every single aspect of this crisis is going to help the bigger companies and hurt the mid-size and smaller companies like everything from just the very crisis itself i mean you know which is just going to you know it's uh, the it's going to hurt the companies who are just getting by obviously more so than the ones mm-hmm. who are huge uh, companies and then everything from the bailouts to the government spending going up always seems to make its hands into the politically connected more so than average people. Uh, I think that obviously the low interest rates always seem to kind of, you know, um, give an advantage to speculators and the Wall Street casino connected people. And and it does it, it, you know, it screws over, you know, people on fixed incomes and savers and stuff like that. So I agree. I agree with you completely that it seems like every Every inch of this is we're going to come out of this with worse inequality uh, than than we already have. Yeah. And if nothing else, I think libertarians should realize that even if you don't, in theory, think there's anything wrong with inequality, you could at least realize that it makes a whole bunch of people advocate for socialism. And that's not so good. So, you know, the, anything that is uh, exacerbating that inequality, especially if it's not, you know, legitimately uh, uh, created, um, is not a good thing. I think that's for sure. Yeah. And I mean... 
to like it's you know there's gonna be desperate people i know around here they're deploying the national guard and stuff and on the one hand you say oh they're just doing that as a power grip right but i think they're also doing it because they know there's gonna be looting and you know i mean everyone's staying at home and people are desperate they're gonna go out and start you know smashing in windows and stuff from storefronts where the owners are sitting in their house under law so yeah it's it could get ugly and uh i thought of another example too in terms of like the free market one of the issues with you know why it's you know the chic thing to to flatten the curve and all that stuff, it's because of the hospital capacities. You know the idea being that if we could spread out you know the the amount of cases going to the hospital per week, fewer people will die, right? Because that's a, that's a big thing that we need to have the you know the ICU beds and so on. And f- my understanding is Ford you know was retooling and like look we're ready to crank out these ventilators. You know we're right. Re- and the FDA was making, and, and then to go through the hoops, it's going to take like 45 days for them to be up and run. You know, and it's, it's stuff like that where, you know, I, that, I don't think would happen in a market economy. You know I mean? So like, no, we, absolutely. we know this, we see this problem is coming. There's plenty of people, you know, they're not making cars right now. They want to help, you know, everyone's mobilized to, to do this. It, it's, uh, I, I was hoping, and I guess we'll still see what happens. I hope when all is said and done, the, U, it, the analogy I'm using is like World War II, they where Yes, FDR greatly expanded the role of government. That was not a free market response to the situation. But there's also a sense in which, why did the U.S. win that? Because their private business just cranked out so many tanks and battleships and stuff. Like they just outproduced, the, you know, the other powers. They dwarfed them, and that's that's how it was. And the, clearly, I would say that's because of you know U.S. ingenuity and its relative free market economy, even though it wasn't a free market in 1940s. Um, so likewise, here I was I was hoping that Trump, the one good thing about him is if somebody could get his attention and say, just deregulate, waive all these regulations and just let them go, that he would have done that. And I think he, do, he is doing it somewhat, but, but still, like I said, it's my understanding is that Ford, you know, should be cranking out these ventilators and stuff is, is having to do like a whole month delay with, with jumping through hoops and things like that. So that, that's what I was hoping is that, is that Trump would, would, so yeah, go ahead and throw a bunch of money at it. But at least get rid of the let them let the private businesses step in and, and build these things. Just like in World War II, it was like the private companies retooled, and FDR kind of made his peace with them when he realized I need them to be cranking out stuff. Yeah, yeah, no question about that. And, and another uh, another good point that um, uh, I had uh, Tom on the show the other day. Tom Woods, you heard of him? Young new <laughs> yeah. kid. Keep keep your eye on this guy. Yeah, he's going he's, places. He's an up and comer. Yeah. Uh, but he he mentioned which I hadn't even thought of before. But you know it, that um because there's just so many government rules and regulations, it's hard to keep track of all of them. But um, the fact that it's like, well, look, one of the big problems is they're saying there's not enough room at these hospitals. There's not enough beds. They're bringing in these ships and they're turning the Javits Center in New York into like a giant hospital and all these things. And he was like, well, you kind of have to look at the certificate of need legislation that's all around the country that's basically limits the amount of hospitals that can be built. And, and as Tom put it, w- w- he goes, you know, none of us know exactly how many hospital beds there should be in the country. Like obviously right. 300 million would be too much and a thousand would be too little, you know, and right. it should be somewhere I- in the middle. But there's pretty much no question that the certificate of need legislations, uh, they make it less than it would be. Like there would be more if you have these laws that are limiting the amount of hospitals that can be built. So also quite possibly if if those those laws and rules didn't exist, there there would be more uh hospital, more the hospitals could accommodate more people. Yeah, I I think they're actually trying what I'm about to tell you here. Some I, I don't know if it's in California. I'm I forget. But like few nobody's staying in hotels right now. And so you could, you know, you it wouldn't be so hard just to convert them. Again, it wouldn't be like, you know, where you want to go get brain surgery or something when all was said and done. But in terms of, oh my gosh, we have two weeks to get ready for this huge wave. Yeah, I mean that that would be something. And I'm, you know, there's there's regulations that maybe they're waiving them in certain instances. But yeah, clearly, if it were just a, a technological problem, we had time to get ready for this. Even in other words, even though like in the beginning. It was it was a small number of cases, but I'm saying once everybody knew, whoa, this could be big. There was still you know time to get ready, and yet I think yeah, there were like you're saying, there's a lot of regulations in place, particularly in the medical sector. It's like the financial sector and the medical sector are so heavily regulated that that was that was stymieing the efforts, and and so you know unfortunately, I think more people are going to die than would need to, and so it's and, and I. It's, um, you know, people don't, you don't want to make this ideological or whatever, but I, I really do think this is a, an open and shut case where it's, it's clear that there are plenty of government regulations right now that are, that are hurting. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that you're right. I think there's no question about that. So what do you think, um, you know, short of we live in an anarcho-capitalist society, like dealing with the society that we actually live in now, what do you think like would be the best response from the government? Obviously, you just touched on some of it right there with like the, the like massive deregulations. Let let these companies help. Let them do it. Get try to get rid of the red tape. I've been flowed. Uh, I was, you know, saying, well, if we're going to um, spend all this money uh, anyway, um, maybe, you know, how about repealing the income tax for a year? How about, you know, repealing uh, taxes on people's retirement accounts and let people access their funds if they need to? Things like this, um, you know, like, do you? What do you think of those ideas or what, what do you think the government could be doing within reason? Yeah, so certainly I'm always in favor of tax cuts and, and hey, we, we could say this is our chance. This, we could push through the tax cuts that we've always wanted with this crisis. <laughs> right. um, and so, you know, that's certainly they that would apply here because, um, yeah, the, part of the problem, you asked me this before and I, and I forgot to bring this point up. Part of the issue is depending on how these so-called stimulus measures are designed if it's tied to you being unemployed, right? Like they want to extend unemployment benefits. And they, the, the, the issue with that is you're paying people not to work, right? And so it's, it, it, that's, and that's the, the logic behind even some libertarians who like the UBI. So to be clear, I'm not in general a fan of UBI by any stretch, but I'm just saying that's, that's where they're coming from is they're saying, if you just give them no strings attached, you don't, in other words, you don't want to say, here, you get a bunch of money from us if you don't have a job, but if you go get a job, then we stop sending you the money. That that's you know that has a perverse incentive effect. Whereas getting rid of taxes, um, you know, like a, like the, getting rid of the payroll tax, for example, which I guess Trump was looking at, like that that makes it from a from a firm's point of view to get rid of the payroll, the employer side of the payroll tax means it's cheaper to go hire a worker, right? So the, so that's the logic there, where the it's not merely the government losing revenue to try to help, but it's in lining up the incentives the right way. So that's the 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 downside of what you know the critics would say. Okay, but tax cuts or whatever don't help somebody who's unemployed. And I and I get that, but but the, again, the counter argument is okay. But more people are going to be employed if you reduce taxes, you know. So that that's the idea. Um, but yeah, getting rid of all of those regulations. Um, one thing I, I before we we run out of time here, I just want to mention in terms of you know I'm real pessimistic, obviously, with all this stuff just hitting us. But I think one good thing coming out of this is a lot more people are going to start homeschooling. That you know they were afraid of it before; they didn't know how it worked. Now they're kind of being forced to do it. And they might realize, you know, we, we don't trust these people running the system and, you know, not a partisan thing, just in general, realizing that this, this system is, is not trustworthy and we got to take matters into our own hands. And so I, I think that's one benefit that's going to come out of this is that more people are going to be homeschooling. Oh, uh, yeah. I think I actually, I was taking out uh, listener questions for a couple episodes ago and somebody mentioned something about that where they said like, oh, well, you know, isn't the silver lining of all this that there'll be a lot of kids who aren't at uh, public schools and are home with their families for a while. And I was like, hey, yeah, fair enough. That might be uh, that that might be a nice thing. And, mm -hmm. and like you said, a lot of people just that now parents kind of have to, you know, at least try some type of homeschooling for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe that would be a silver lining. I also oh. I. I Oh, go ahead. By the way, you just reminded me in terms of we were talking about like the trade offs and, you know, the unintended consequences. That's another one, too, that um, my, I think his name is Michael Osterholm. He's a, this, he did Joe Rogan's show. He's like the guy from the University of Minnesota, the, their Center for Infectious Policy Research. And he was he was making the point early on that he didn't think the school closures were a good idea. And and, be, and be, not because, oh, now kids aren't going to know how to multiply. He was saying because um, if the kids are home, then there's a lot of like 20 percent of the healthcare workers then can't go in because they got to stay home with their kids. So, so just little things like that, where even if you put aside economic efficiency and like you're just trying to single mindedly, you know, have humanity deal with this virus and to minimize the impacts, things that, you know, top down government rules that seem to make sense. Like, oh, yeah, keep kids home. So we stop the spread. Well, now that means there's fewer hospital workers. So it's not it's not obvious that's the right thing to do. Yeah, uh, some Tom was uh, reading from an article in the New York Times where some doctor was basically arguing that the idea of shutting down colleges was kind of insane because you're sending these college kids who are in a very low risk demographic home with their older parents and sometimes grandparents who are in a higher risk area. And this could have like that. So again, it's sometimes these things aren't as straightforward as you think you're like, you actually have to think these through and weigh out the different options. And sometimes it's kind of impossible to know. I mean, I, you know, I, you don't exactly know right. how to best flatten the curve. Um, but the other thing of course, is that I, I do think that, and I'm curious to your opinion on this, but at what 
like if we're just shutting down huge sectors of the economy, whatever is deemed non-essential, you know, somewhat arbitrarily, but whatever, the, the, the shutdowns are very real. I, I'm starting to wonder, like, how long we can do this before people are going to start to realize that there's a real cost associated with this, too, and that it's, it may be impossible to completely weigh out versus the virus um, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm very concerned about the virus. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. my, my, uh, my parents and my wife's parents are, are in the higher, you know, demographic ranges. Uh, my, my wife's mother has MS, my wife's, uh, brother, my, my brother-in-law ha- has an autoimmune de- uh, deficiency disease also. So I'm like, I have a lot of people I'm worried about, um, in this situation, but there's also a real human cost to shutting down the economy. It's not just mm-hmm. numbers in a stock market. And, and I mm-hmm. wonder you know, what do you think about our, our, how we weigh out those costs? Well, just going back to what we said earlier, I think, you know, you allow freedom and then that's, right. you know, people make their decisions. Because of the, part of the problem right now is no, a lot of the people making those decisions, they're not bearing the consequences if they get it wrong. And so, um, and so I think, you know, that's, that's something that at least if you had it more open-ended and, and let people make their own decisions. Like I said, I think there'd be a lot more voluntary campaigns to like just stay home and stuff like that. Um, and, and, the, and the businesses would, would, would figure out how to respond appropriately. And again, again if it were just a, a market economy, the protective measures that would be put in place. So given people going into work, that's the kind of thing I, you know, if it were a more free market, then certain businesses could stay open, but it wouldn't just be people working in a factory, just, you know, uh, exposed, breathing each other's air. Like maybe they'd put, you know, more secure measures, you know, have them get ventilator masks on or something. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, yeah. I think there's, there's a, a way it's, it's like, Oh, is it safe to drive cars or not? You know? And it's like, Oh, well, there's a whole spectrum of things there. It's not just ban cars or not. It's you have cars and they have seatbelts and they have airbags. And so there's lots of stuff that could be done here. Um, you know, as, as a mixture, like, so yes, the economy needs to adapt to this, this thing. And maybe, yeah, maybe the right thing to do would have been for the first month, everybody stays home and we just, you know, get, get a sense of this thing. But yeah, as you say, it, it, that can't be indefinite. And it, you know, ultimately the way this is, is going to happen is going to resolve itself is more and more people are going to get it. Most of them are going to recover and then they're going to be immune. And eventually, you know, you'll get some sort of herd immunity. And finally, hopefully they get a, a vaccine in the not too distant future. Yeah. And I guess hopefully there's just not too much, uh, loss of life and, and, you know, people getting, you know, permanent lung damage and stuff like that along the way. Cause it, it does seem to me that like, yeah, we're going to have to open back up at some point and it does, this, this virus is going to be with us and it'll be interesting to see just like the psychological effects it has on people going forward. You know, like, are people going to be shaking hands in, in, right. you know, the next year is that, is that, are people ever going to feel comfortable? I, I mean, I know there's there's definitely a whole lot of new uh, germaphobes that have been created from this, which maybe isn't the worst thing. Um, so one other thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is something that I've seen a lot of people uh, um, arguing about online, um, is the stuff with like price gouging and hoarding mm-hmm. and, and things like this. And one of the things that I actually thought was really interesting through through all of this is, which I had never really thought of um, before, was the fact that stores themselves, again, just a completely voluntary free market action, have been like limiting the number of like mm. rolls of toilet paper you can buy and antibacterial soap and things like this. Like they're, they're almost putting their own foot down, just being like, no, look, you can't take all the, the soap. You know what I mean? Right. Like we need everybody to have some, but then there's, there's of course been some people who were hoarding things and you hear these, these stories about, Oh my God, this, this awful person was charging like a hundred bucks for Purell or something like that. Um, and, and libertarians have always kind of, you know, had it the, it's it's like one of the Walter Block defending the un, undefendable, you know, type things like where it's like, oh, but price gouging, how could you possibly defend that? But um, anyway, I don't know. Any thoughts you have on any of that stuff? Oh, yeah. The, the guy, you know, would, who bought like $17,000 worth of hand sanitizer and he had it in a in a storage unit and he was going to sell it on eBay and then eBay wasn't letting him sell it for high prices. And uh, he was doing the socially correct thing even though, you know, he, he wasn't doing it to be a nice guy or whatever. Actually, I saw an interview with him. It looked like he did have a, at least a rudimentary understanding of, you know, supply and demand and that kind of stuff. And so he could justify what he was doing, but you know, and, and I even saw a lot of libertarian types who are okay with like rising prices to, to ration things, but they're, Oh, but this guy was a jerk because apparently he was like, when he knew this was going to be a thing, 
he drove around with a truck and like cleaned out all the dollar stores and stuff from the hands in his area. And then that's how he, he stocked up. And yeah, and, and I see people think, oh, so that's, that's the, you know, he's causing the shortage. If he had been allowed to sell, no, all he would have been doing was rearranging where the hand sanitizer was located, right? And so if you think it through, like you're saying, the dollar stores, they, at that early stage, they weren't limiting the sales. You know, some guy came in and just bought everything on the shelf. They let him. And so um, had he not done that, I mean, all that would have meant was normal people when, when this thing, you know, like a, a week after he had done that, you know, they would have heard this thing. They would have been scared. And the first few lucky households, the stores would have cleaned it out. And so that's that's the kind of thing to, to realize that when someone is doing it as a speculative business, that they're, oh, I'm going to buy these things low and then sell them high. They're ensuring that just real limited quantities get out into people's hands. You know, so more total people are going to have hand sanitizer if he had been allowed to sell that than if he didn't do what he did. Because if he didn't do what he did, those dollar stores would have been cleaned out a week later. But instead of by him, it just would have been by like the first 15 households who got there. Right. And so, you know, and so if, and if you're a household with, five bottles of hand sanitizer, you're probably not going to be selling it on eBay as much. Whereas if he's got a whole, you know, storage unit, that's his business. That's what he's doing. Obviously he's going to be looking at eBay and sending it around. So my, my point is just that even in a, you know, worst case scenario like that, that's actually what you would have wanted to do, that there was a, a limited number of hand sanitizer bottles when the crisis hit. And how do you ensure that they don't just end up in a few households who happen to get to the store first is there's a you know a shockingly outrageous price that's you and the, the other thing too is um, w- with having prices so I agree with you Dave that certain retailers it would just be bad for their name brand like you, when you go to Walmart you don't want to see paper towels that cost twenty dollars a roll like you you'd be forever be mad at Walmart so that's right. why they're not going to do that but on the other hand if you go to the store and now there's no toilet paper you don't know what that means you don't know okay can I just get it next Thursday you don't know how like the stockpile you have at your house you don't know how you know to much to ration that, it, and or you, and maybe toilet paper is a hard thing to think of, but like hand sanitizer, you know, you can be more or less liberal with the hand sanitizer. You can like use soap when you're in the house and not use the hand sanitizer. And I'm saying if if there were at least some stores that did have prices that would always clear the market, so you knew, oh yeah, you go down that store down the street, those guys are jerks, but you can always get toilet paper. It's just going to cost you eight dollars a roll. You would then have some sense. You could see the price changing over time, and you would know how is it. Whereas right now, it's just people keep checking up. Nope, no toilet paper yet. Yeah, and we don't know what we don't know what that means. Does, is there going to be toilet paper next week? You know that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I also just have never really. I mean, I guess maybe you could paint some scenario where I'd feel bad for someone, but in general, it's like I don't know. I mean, you're not talking about like breaking somebody you're you're talking about charging a few more bucks for toilet paper or hand sanitizer right. it's like i in, in these type of times i think the vast majority of people have no problem paying a few bucks more i mean we've probably all spent more on groceries than we normally do kind of stocking up and, and sure. stuff like that so and, and also yeah it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy too where because of the shortages like so in other words people who have gone to the stores uh, sorry let me back up I had thought originally when there was all these shortages of toilet paper, it was because the supply chain was screwed up that like the people making them couldn't get to the factories or the truck. And no, it's from various sources. I've heard the supply chains are okay. It's just, you know, people are just, as soon as it shows up, boom, they they get cleaned out. And, uh, and that makes sense now because right, if you've been going to the store and you know, toilet paper hasn't been there the last four times you've been to the store, if you go and you do happen to see it, you're not just going to grab a roll. You're going to grab like a month's worth because you realize. So, but now if everyone's doing that, that's why it's never in stock. Right. You right. see, so it's kind of like if there were some stores that you know uh, price gougers are us or something <laughs> that just always had it there, or you know eBay allowed you to get it, you know allowed you know someone to charge an unconscious like that would I think reassure people they wouldn't panic. And, and feel like they had to buy a million rolls at the normal price whenever they saw it, because they would know if, if we get into a pinch, we can go buy. And like you said, it's not like, oh, well, only the rich people can afford $5 toilet paper. No, it's just it's more expensive than it normally would be. No, I, I the real life example for me of uh, this stuff was was Uber in New York City. And it used to be the case in New York City that you could only uh, get a um, you, you couldn't get a cab when it was raining. 
Like when it was mm-hmm. raining, it would be impossible to to get a right. cab. So if you were like in an emergency or you're in a rush somewhere, you're just it, it, too bad because everyone's jumped in them and there are no cabs. Right. And I, right. every New Yorker who is like around my age had a situation before where they're literally just walking blocks in a downpour and then have some emergency thing they have to get to. And it's just, oh, my God. And that, then Uber came along and it would be like, oh, you can always get a car. But. They're going to charge you like 50 bucks. If it was going to be 20 bucks, it'll be like 50 bucks now. But all it was was an extra option. It's like you could still walk around in the rain and the pouring rain all day and not have a ride like that option is still out to you. But now if it's that big an emergency, you got to pick up your kid or something like that. You can, you know, you get price gouged, but at least there's the option of getting it. And if you really need something, aren't you happy to at least have the option to get right. it for a little bit more money than nothing. Yeah. And that was the thing, like with the guy with the hand sanitizer and eBay wouldn't let them sell those people who were willing to pay. And I don't remember what the price was. It, it was a high price. Don't get me wrong, but there were people willing to pay that. And then eBay said, no, he didn't send it to him for the regular price. He just didn't send it to him. Right. So it's not obvious. How does that make you better off to know you didn't get ripped up and I don't have hand sanitizer. So they forced him to hoard instead right. of price gouging. So some, is that really better? I mean, and certainly, as you said, that's like the Misesian, you know, logical deduction that, well, if somebody is willing to pay that, then I could at least say that that person would prefer him to sell it than not sell it at all. Right. I mean, maybe yeah. I'm sure they'd prefer a lower price, but they'd, pro- they, they would still rather buy it than not buy it at all. Um, okay. Um, well, I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap there. Um, but, uh, it's, it's great to talk to you and, uh, I really appreciate all of your insights in this, uh, situation. I always appreciate all of your insights, but particularly in, uh, with all, uh, helping me make sense of a lot of this craziness. And I, uh, of course, wish you and your family the best. And that goes to everybody, uh, listening and watching as well. Hope everybody's, uh, uh, doing okay. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be back with a new episode, uh, tomorrow. All right. Thanks so much, Bob. Thanks for having me, Dave. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.